Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's sermon podcast at Yarmouth Wesleyan. We hope that you are encouraged by the message that you're about to hear. Uh, And we would really appreciate uh, if you would subscribe on Apple Music or follow us on Spotify. That really helps us continue uh, to do the work that we are doing. So thanks again for tuning in and enjoy the message. Morning, church. Uh, we are going to dig into Romans. We're going to pause the Romans series uh, next week. We're going to do something different for a couple weeks, but we are still in the book of Romans, and I need to set the stage a little bit uh, for what we're about to do and the passage we're about to tackle, or this could be just a very uh, unique and possibly confusing next 30 minutes. Uh, if you've read your Bible for any length of time, you know there's some incredible gifts from studying the Word, getting in your Bible. But there's also some uh, landmines you can step on or misfires we can have if we're not careful in how we approach the Scripture. Uh, One of the mistakes people make when approaching, as Mark said, that that Bible you often carry around or maybe the Bible app on your phone as you carry it around, one of the mistakes we can make when we're reading our Bible is to have an overly devotional approach to how we read it. Now, I don't mean devotion as in daily commitment to reading. I mean devotional in the term of devotions. Uh, many people have a devotional book they read, and it'll be uh, two or three hundred words by an author, and then a verse or two in a closing prayer. And if you do that, I'm not against that. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But if you read your Bible predominantly with a devotional bent, it can make it really complicated to come to passages like we're dealing with today. Devotions are a good survey. It's a snack through your day, but it's not always a great meal. Does that make sense? Or did I just ruin most of your devotional habits? Uh, It's the same kind of thing where if you have pieces of scripture uh, on mugs or paintings, if we're not careful, we take snippets and we overread the snippet and miss the bigger context of which it's in. Or maybe you scroll Facebook and a verse is just kind of plastered there, brief, no context. Like, Well, I'm not really sure what that verse is about. That's kind of over-devotionalizing some of the Bible. The other mistake we make, and this is really common in the West, is we assume all of the Bible is about us. Did you know you're not the main character of the story? Did you know most of the Bible, if not almost all of it, isn't even about you? Now, there are things we apply, there are things we receive from it, but there was an original audience in original context. There was a people group, there was a church in Rome and house churches in Rome that received that letter from Paul for the very first time, and he was actually talking to them, not Yarmouth Wesleyan Church on May 22nd, 2022. Now again, don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean there's not principles and things we glean from it, but not everything about us. And as a free aside, this is just a freebie on my list, not all of the Bible is go and do likewise. There's a whole bunch of the Bible that is, this is not prescriptive, this is descriptive, this is just what happened. And if you read carefully, you ought not to go do likewise. This is not a good idea. This is the problem. These are things that happen if you follow and walk in their steps. And so the last one, this is my favorite one, my absolute favorite, being a third generation pastor's kid, been around the church my entire life. I have known oxygen and church my entire life. This is my favorite one about reading the Bible. How quickly Christians will fight over a passage. That's my favorite one. Any scrappers in the room? Come on now, scrappy. 
There's nothing like a room full of church people to take a passage from God's word, weaponize it, and then shoot other people in the room with it. And so what happens is we don't even just do it in the rooms. We then build gigantic denominations around it. We will take a piece or a chapter. We will take something. We will build an entire infrastructure with scaffolding, the whole building around a piece of scripture, and then point to other denominations why they don't have it figured out and why they're not right. Now, you wouldn't do that. But some people in some churches might. We're going to Romans 9 today. Now you're like, so? Romans 9 may be one of the most complicated passages in the Bible to preach from, and definitely one of the most in the, in the New Testament. I read, I listened, I researched to all the brilliant, holy, and intelligent minds out there, and they're like, all with a resounding voice, good luck, preachers. Good luck. This one is complicated. This one is deep. This one causes a ton of fights. This one makes Christians upset. This makes other Christians arrogant. This does all kinds of things to people. And at the end of the day, we're still not 100% sure what it means. Last thing, it's not even about you. So what do you do when you're reading through Romans and you're in chapter 8? And it's all about the life in the Spirit. And we gathered in here last week and I kind of said to you, like, there is another way to live where we're not in control. We're not calling the shots, but God himself, through his Holy Spirit, wants to lead through us and in us. And there is another way to live. And we're like, yeah. And you're just thinking like, no, it wasn't last week. It was two weeks ago because Tanya was here last week. And we talk about the life in the Spirit. And if you read to the end of chapter 8, it gets into the incredible, everlasting love of God. Who can come against us? God's plan to redeem and reconcile all things for those. He, like this incredible crescendo in chapter 8. And in chapter 9, it's the complete opposite. Chapter 8 is the crescendo for the first part of Romans. And chapter 9 is like an annual business meeting. Now, it's not going to feel like that at first. But Paul goes from speaking to the entire church that he's writing to, to zeroing in on the Israelite people in the church. Now, I don't know all of your background. I don't know how many Jewish people we have in this room. But for the next few moments, the only way you're going to have a fighting chance to understand what is going on in chapter 9 is if we step into a bit of a Jewish mindset for a few minutes. The problem of sitting where you're sitting from where you're looking at it, your vantage point is wildly unhelpful when you come to Romans chapter 9. Because you'll be tempted to say, what does this mean for me? Before we ask, what did it mean for them? So for a few moments, let me talk to you and let us get ourselves in a position that maybe felt like the Jewish people as they heard this read for the very first time. If you're not familiar with the Jewish people, they are God's chosen people. If anything resonates, you just kind of nod with me like, yeah, that's right. There'll be good practice for later when we start preaching. Like, that's right, it's God's chosen people. Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. In all your families of all the earth shall be blessed. That's a good verse, isn't it? 
Wouldn't it be great if God was speaking that specifically over your family lineage today? Like if he zeroed in on your family, at your family reunion, your gathering, and he said to you, I will make your name great. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will bless you and I will bless you. And if anyone comes against you, I will fight on your behalf. Would that not be phenomenal? If God said to Yarmouth Weston, I will bless this church and I will make this church great and I will handle all the business of your coming and your going, I think I would like that. The next thing we know about those very Jewish people who will be blessed is they spend many, 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 many generations in captivity. Wait a minute. You just said we'll be blessed and I'll make a great nation. And he did. They were multiplying so fast, Pharaoh said, we better imprison them. They're multiplying so quickly, we should put them into slavery for fear they may rise up against us. And so this blessed people of God who were told that God would defend them find themselves in slavery and captivity for 400 years. God leads them out only to find them at war for most of the Old Testament. They are fighting over and over and over and their win-loss record is not exactly phenomenal. They find themselves at home and in exile Back and forth. They find a temple and a temple destroyed back and forth. You come to the New Testament and they are promised a Messiah and their Messiah shows up and suffers and dies. You come to the book of Acts and these people of God who would be be told they would be his representation in Acts all of a sudden God says, I'm doing a new thing. Now anybody can be my people. They find themselves in Rome, kicked out again from Rome, only to come back to find their church taken over by these new Christians. That's a bit of their history. Enslaved, at war, in captivity, in exile, and all of a sudden, one of the many. I think we need to feel that for a minute. To feel what they were going through as we come to these questions, because while I can't speak for them, would it be fair to say that they might have been asking questions like, what is God's people doing in captivity? Is that a fair question? I will bless you and make you great. We're enslaved for 430 years. Where is God's greatness now? Would it be possible that if you were told that you would be God's people and anybody who came against you would be cursed and you find yourself losing war, would you not ask the question, where is the power of God now? Would you ask that? It's okay, you're allowed to. If you find yourself getting exiled over and over and over and evicted from your home, would you not ask the question, why is God not defending our home? Since God's Messiah shows up, what kind of Messiah suffers and dies? Shouldn't he be ruling and reigning? And what's with all the others? I don't know how you're wired, but if I'm one of God's chosen people, that means I'm kind of special. Fair? If I'm special, that means you're not so special. Can we be honest for a moment that we like being special? Can we be honest for a moment that when somebody is just as special as us, it kind of chips away from our specialness just a tiny little bit? Remember participation ribbons? (laughs) If everyone gets a ribbon, then I don't want a ribbon. Maybe that's just me. But I think it was them too. Wait a minute. I thought, and I thought, 
and I thought, and at every turn, it was not panning out the way they thought. They wanted it to be different. Don't we want it to be different? They expected better for being God's people. Don't you sometimes expect it to be better being God's people? They thought we deserve better. Don't we think we deserve better? I can hear them almost saying, we didn't sign up for this. Have you ever found yourself in a season of life feeling like, I didn't sign up for this? While we may not be them, they may not be that different from us. It's in that state you find these people frustrated, discouraged, displaced, trying to find a home, trying to find their identity again, wondering what is God up to? I think questions that you and I have both asked that you then read Romans 9. When we read Romans 9 from a denominational lens or a theological argument of position, we land in a very different place. Look at how Paul opens. We're going to do a lot of reading today. Bear with me. This isn't about you, so hang with me. Listen how Romans 9 starts. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That is the heart of a pastor. That is not a theological argument starting. That is a Jewish person speaking to Jewish people to say, how have we lost our way? That is a Jewish person saying to a Jewish group of people, we were selected by God to be God's people. How have we got off on this other tangent? We were to fix our eyes on God. How have we fixed our eyes on other things? He goes so far as to say, God, if you could save my people, I would let you curse me. Some of you have prayed that, haven't you? Some of you have prayed for your kids with such focus and such passion that you have found yourself saying things like, God, if even I missed out, don't make them miss out. Yes? No, God doesn't make trades. God doesn't need to make trades. But do you hear the heart? Do you hear the anguish that he has for his people that were given the promise, were given the legacy, were given the Messiah, and they're missing it? He's like, I would do anything. I would do anything to help them see it more clearly. Then we come into a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a firmer Paul after he lays his heart on the table. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. The Jewish people missing the Messiah and not seeing Jesus as Jesus is not because God had failed them. For not all who are descended from, the, from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This means that it was not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, also, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show, you my power, my, show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he, has, he hardens whomever he wills. We're going to do a lot of slugging here for a few minutes. But what you have going on here is the Israelite people kind of shaking their fist at God. Like, we don't like what's happening we don't like this new script. We don't like where we find ourselves displaced from Rome. We come back. The new church has taken over. This is not what we signed up for. And Paul says, you didn't sign up for anything. Do you hear it? Genesis says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And now they're saying, whoa, this isn't how we want this to go. And Paul's like, okay, hold on a second. I'm going to have to give you a bit of a history lesson for your history. Did you forget that God picked all these great people through your history and did the great things through them? Whoa. Did, did you forget it was God that plucked people? And it wasn't based on their works, on their merit. It was because God, in his generosity, reached down and said, I'm going to use the unusable. Did you forget this? Then there's that little trigger verse I feel like I need to acknowledge for a brief moment. One I loved and one I hated. You caught that, right? You're like, see, that's the part of God I don't understand. But that's not just Old Testament stuff. That's Jesus too. That's Jesus who says, come and follow me. And whoever doesn't hate his father and mother. And that has caused a lot of discomfort in the church. Like, what is this idea that if I'm for God, I have to hate my family? That's, that's not really what that's about. What we do when we read the Bible with Western eyes, we interpret it all with Western lenses. This is not a, I love one and I hate one. This is a, this is a language of allegiance. This is expressive of, I am so for this that if I have to turn from something, I am so in on this, my heart is over here. It does not mean I love one and hate the other. It's that I have selected and given my allegiance to this. I am so for this. It's like I'm against this. And what happens is we get this word election starts bubbling up. We move election over to salvation instead of keeping election on purposes. What God chooses to do and how he chooses to use his people is on full display. God's saying, I, I selected these people. I had purposes and I had plans for them. And they did what I needed them to do. And so the pushback for, from you and from I and from the reader is, if you chose us and you elected us and you made us do this, what responsibility do we have in this? 
If we were just marching to the beat of your drum, don't, don't, put, the hot seat, don't put us in the hot seat if we didn't live up or if we mis, made mistakes. And Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If he's just going to pick and choose to do what he wants to do, what part do we have in this? And Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's going to push it further. What if, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make, his, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not less, left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And that is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it was based on the works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Because as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the church said, no, you didn't. You said, what? Tell the truth. You have no idea what's going on there. And the church has been arguing since Paul wrote it. It is weedy, lengthy, and complicated to the point I thought about skipping it. Not really, but I wanted to. There's stuff going on there that we know nothing about sitting where we sit. There's language going on. There's theology going on. There's so much meat going on that almost requires a Tuesday Romans group to dig more into it. But when you step back from it, when we stop arguing about election and predestination and what God is doing specifically, and you look at the themes of what's going on there, Paul is leaning into the Israelites. Some things have drifted that Paul is, while he loves them, his heart breaks them, he's leaning on a couple of themes. One of the themes that Paul is leaning into is that this is about clinging to relationship over blessing. The Israelite people have landed themselves in a place where they are putting God on trial. They went from being nobodies who had nothing to now looking at their blessings saying, God, who do you think you are? God, what do you think you're doing 
by having us go in and out of exile, having us go in and out of battle, having the Messiah not come through for us, having these other Christians show up, what do you think you're doing and who do you think you are? And Paul's saying, whoa, you may have been circumcised and your last name be such and such, but we're not putting God on trial here. This is not about clinging to the blessing. This is about clinging to the one who is the blesser. This is not about holding to the things that God can give us. This is about holding to God and whatever he wants to do with us, he's God and we're not. I'm so glad they're the only generation who's ever struggled with that idea. Paul shifts their perspective. It is not this is who we are. It is this is who God is. He shifts them from we will define what we will look like to you will define what we look like. And my favorite shift, he shifts them from this is not Israel's story. This is God's story. This is not Yarmouth Wesleyan's story. This is God's story. We will not cling to the blessings over the one who blesses. We will not cling to our things over the one who bestowed the very things into our stewardship. Paul leans in even deeper. He says, this is about how God can and will act freely. We call this the sovereignty of God. And people in 2022 just love this one. (laughs) We love gathering and saying, God will be God. God can do what God wants to do because he is God and I am not because we are the model of humility these days. I think we need to feel that shift again. God, you are God and I am not. And when Paul leans in here, he gets a little bit aggressive mid there. It's called like a diatribe. He's leaning on them saying, how dare you put God on trial? Later at the end of chapter 11, he's going to say, who even here knows the mind of God? How unsearchable are his ways? And so what he's trying to do is not press in like we don't know what God is up to. He's trying to press in and say, God can do whatever he wants because he's God. And we get to say amen. Because later what he says is, and in his ability to do whatever he wants, he pours out grace and mercy on the undeserving. Michael Gorman says it this way, God is about the business of unexpected, undeserved, startling mercy. Do you like that? God is about the business of undeserved, unexpected, startling mercy. The Israelites are mad not because they are left out, but because somebody else has been included. Sometimes we get a little shifty when our space gets messed up by others showing up. And, God, and Paul is saying God can pour his mercy on whomever he wants. God can work however he wants. God can use whomever he chooses. And God can save whoever. The church probably should have said something there. God can save whoever. Not just God can save whoever. God can save anyone. That God is pouring out his mercy in reckless and startling ways. And it makes us uncomfortable. I feel like the Israelites, like this is breaking 
boxes. This is breaking mold. We don't know what you're up to anymore. And Paul's saying, don't worry about how God is doing what he's doing. Be in awe that he's doing it. Because the third thing he leans in really uh, specifically on is this is about God's glory and the mystery and magnificence of who he is. Are you okay with God's mystery? Are you okay with the mystery of God? Are you okay if God moves in and shatters all of your preconceived boxes? Are you okay if he starts doing things through people, kinds of people, spaces and places that we kind of predetermined, like, I don't think God moves there. That's kind of, that's kind of one layer out. And he sure should move that way because I don't think that passes the Wesleyan sniff test. Like, that's not how he did it when I was a kid. And they are feeling the things that we often feel. Like, God, you're, you're changing what you're doing. And Paul's saying, that's because you fixed your eyes on the method, not the God who was doing it. This isn't your story. This isn't how you would do it. This is about God and how he would do it. And I find myself asking the question, am I clinging to the blessings more than the blesser? Do I want God's blessings more than I want God himself? I can't help but read that and feel like I'm them. I can't help but read that and ask myself, am I trusting that God can act freely to do what he wants however he wants to do it? I have to like unclench the old hand a little bit. God, this is your church. God, this is your community. God, if you want to send us into blessing or send us into exile, it's yours. The old hand clenches pretty tight, right? Maybe you think, well, I don't care that much about this church. How about your kids? Are you okay if God moves as freely as he wants to move in the lives of your children, even if you don't understand what he's doing when he's doing it? Are you okay, God, moving in your health, in your finances, in your free time, and him just having his way, and us to say, God, you are God and we are not? And I find myself asking, am I actually okay with the mystery on this journey? Do I actually have a space and place in my relationship with him where if he wants to destroy every box burn down all my formulas, all my tricks, all my whatever, and start all over and do it fresh and new, am I clinging to him more than his methods? And Paul, when he rolls out all this stuff to his Israelite people, listen to how he ends it in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart desire, my desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge. Do you hear it? After Paul walks through all this thing, he says, ah, more than anything, I just want them to be saved. I want them to know God, and I want them to have a zeal and a passion that makes no earthly sense. Do you, can we let Paul pray over us today? Can that prayer go forward over our church this morning? Heavenly Father, could Paul be our pastor here for a minute? And as Paul writes in chapter 10, there's just this, this, this pastoral language of God, more than anything, 
I want to see people know you. Not the blessings, not the narratives, not the formulas, not the script, not all the boxes that we're used to. We want to know God and God himself. And then he just leaks his heart. I want them to have a zeal and a passion that exceeds knowledge and human sense. God, give us a heart for you. Give us a passion for you. Give us a heart for the things that you have a heart for and shrink our interest in the things that you're not interested in. Give us your eyes, your heart, and your hands this week because you're God and we are not.